1: We're looking this morning at Matthew 12, 43 through 45, so I'd like to ask that you turn there and look along with me if you would. This is a fascinating passage of scripture. So much that we can learn from this text, many, many things. But I want to focus in on your hearts this morning, That I might try to understand what's going on in there. What do you love? What is your treasure? What are you yearning for? What are you living for? Back in the 17th century, one of my heroes, Blaise Pascal, did a remarkable experiment. He made a tube of glass over three stories tall. You can imagine what a feat that was. Filled it with fluid and put it in a vat of the same fluid and did an experiment. Really an experiment on barometric pressure. But from those experiments, he understood... Uh, the pressure in fluids and eventually we got hydraulic brakes and pistons and hypodermic needles and all kinds of other things out of that thinking that he did But what was fascinating to the people at the time was when you filled this tube of, of glass Full of fluid and lifted it up. It would drop down To a certain level and they wondered what was in the top What is the what's in there? You know, it was a cupped-off ending, and it was a certain shape, and and it was Pascal, more than anyone, that helped us really to understand vacuum. What is a vacuum? What's going on up there at the top of that tube? Pascal was also a committed Christian who loved the Lord and who had a passionate relationship with Christ, who said the heart has its reasons that reason doesn't understand he says that faith in Christ goes beyond reason. He was a reasonable man, but he went beyond it. And attributed to him, and I'm not able to prove, certainly, I'm a historian and I want to know the date that he said it and I couldn't find it. But I'm going to go ahead and say that he made this utterance and he said there is within each one of us a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. A God-shaped vacuum, kind of an odd way to put it, but the idea is that there's a space, an emptiness inside us that is meant for God. And only God can fill it. Now, what is meant for God to fill is going to get filled with something. Others have said nature abhors a vacuum. It's going to fill that vacuum with something. The question is what? What? Is it going to be the lusts of the worldly life that we live in, demonically induced, forced upon us by an evil and wicked world system? Or is it going to be moral reformation and cleaning up your life and worldly accomplishments and achievements? Or is it going to be Christ? It seems to me the text gives us these options. And what I want to say to you today is that demonically driven lusts And worldly achievements and ethical reformation cannot occupy that space to satisfy you. Only Christ can. Jesus Christ alone can fill that spot, that empty place in your heart. Now, what is the context of this passage? Jesus is in conflict with the scribes and Pharisees, struggling over his ministry. They've rejected him. They hate him. They oppose the kingdom that he proclaims, they don't want it. They're fighting him and they come to him with a demand for a sign. Jesus has done an incredible river of miracles, one miracle after another, probably more casting out of demons, I think, than any other sign. I think he did that more than any other sign. Driving out one demon after another, many demons driven out with a word. Jesus in Matthew 12 says he was binding the strong man and plundering his house. He was coming into Israel and tying up Satan so that he could plunder his house. But the scribes and Pharisees went exactly the wrong way in their assessment of Jesus' ministry. They ascribed to, to Beelzebub, the prince of demons, Jesus' miracles. Said it's only by Beelzebub that he drives out demons. And so Jesus is dealing with this. He's dealing with the fact that Israel, his own people, the Jewish people, are rejecting him. Spurning him. He came to that which was his own and his own did not receive him. He's dealing with that in this text. And what he's doing in these few verses is is very complicated in one sense. He's reasoning from one individual out to the whole nation. And as it is for one person, one demon-possessed person, so it will be for the whole generation. The Jews. And so he says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds a house, unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than, the, than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of this man is worse than the first. You see, he's been talking about a man, an individual man, and then he applies it. That is how it will be for this generation, for the whole nation. So that's what he's doing. Now, the key word, I believe, in the whole text is the word unoccupied. He finds, the demon comes back and finds the house, the the man really, unoccupied. There's nothing in there. It's a vacuum. House is swept clean and put in order. The man's life is together. It's cleaned up. But there's nothing inside. That God-shaped vacuum is not filled with God. It's filled with nothing. And so he says, ah, opportunity. Seven other demons flood in. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That's how it's going to be for the whole nation. That's what he's saying. Now, what I'm saying to you today is that demons, by that I mean demons, specifically demons, and that all the lusts and, the, and what they're driving you to, those things cannot occupy to satisfy. Secondly, I'm going to say that moral reformation, cleaning yourself up, And then, worldly accomplishment and achievements cannot occupy to satisfy. Only Christ can occupy to satisfy. Let's look at the first. Demons cannot occupy to satisfy. Now, in this text, Christ teaches us about demons. No one knows more about demons than Jesus Christ. Christ actually knows demons better than they know themselves. He knows what they want. He knows their condition. Now, these three brief verses give us a rare and astonishing insight into the spiritual world, right from the lips of Jesus. And so we can learn about the demonic world this way. Now, you might say, how can we, who are 21st century people, believe in demons? Well, we're also 21st century believers in the Bible, aren't we? And Jesus clearly taught about demons. So, as a Christian, you're brought to a pass. You can either believe Christ's teachings, that there are demons who behave this way, or you can say, I reject this, but then once you reject that, what do you have left? The Bible's gone. And so the Bible teaches that there are demons, and Jesus here teaches us about them. And I want to look briefly and quickly at 13 brief insights about demons and demonic nature. First, Jesus calls them spirits. They are spirits. Well, what do we mean by that? They're non-physical. They're not made up of atoms, molecules. And for this reason, they're free from fatigue and they are immortal. They're not constrained by space. Thus, many demons could inhabit one person. They are spirits. Secondly, they are called unclean. Uh, In the NIV, it says evil spirits, but really the the, uh, simplest translation would be unclean. They are unclean. What do we mean by this? Well, it implies something of their nature, their character. They're corrupt. They're wicked. They're vile. They love what is evil and they hate what is good. It also implies something of a history of their actions. What they have done. They've been involved in dirty deeds. And that for generations. And so they are despicable and they're evil and they pollute and make vile everything that they touch. The opposite is clean or pure. For example, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. He also said to his disciples, he said, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean. Because of the word I have spoken to. But not every one of you, he said. Meaning Judas wasn't clean. What he's saying is, through faith in his word, we can be clean. Praise God. We can be clean. But these demons, these spirits, are unclean. They're the very picture of filth from God's holy perspective. God's eyes are so pure, he cannot look at evil. And the devil and his unclean spirits are the most vile things in the universe. They are unclean. Thirdly, they are able to indwell a man in some way. We don't really understand this, but it's true. Look at verse 43. It says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man. Now, I don't fully understand what this means, but in some way, the devil, the demon, can be in a man. For Jesus says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man... So, the demon was in some sense in the man, spiritually, living with him, controlling his thoughts, his actions. In some sense, possessing him as if he were his own. Perhaps it comes from the lust that demons have to live a physical life. Something denied them from creation. They're not created with physical bodies, but they have a great interest in our physical lives. But that's just speculation. Mostly, I think they yearn to possess someone's heart to own the way we think and the way we reason, driving us to relentless sin because they are relentlessly empty themselves, able to indwell a man. Fourth, they are powerless to stay if Christ says to leave. What makes the demon leave when an evil spirit comes out of a man? Well, Jesus is referring to his own miracles, to the driving out of demons. And when Jesus says, go, they must go. The terrifying power of God the Son. Jesus' word is powerful and the demons, they must obey and they do. Fifthly, they are restless. Do you see it in the text? Look at verse 43. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. They're roaming, they're wandering, desiring rest. This is more than just a home looking for a new place to live. Oh no, it characterizes their mental state. They are restless, wandering, they're unfulfilled, they're not finding what they seek. Very much like the devil himself, Satan, in Job 1.7, the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? You remember his answer. From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. So that's the devil. He's he's yearning for something, roaming, looking for something restlessly. Rest is the very thing they will never find. I'm going to say more about this in a moment. Sixth, they are not omnipresent. In other words, they are here or they are there. They're not everywhere. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. But demons are not. They move from one place to another. They may move fast. They have no fatigue and no earthly boundaries or borders. They do have spiritual restrictions. In Job 1.10, Satan complains about those spiritual restrictions. He wants to get at Job. And, And he says, have you not put a hedge around him? I can't get at him. And so they do have boundaries, but they can move. All I'm saying is that they're... They're confined one place at a time. Seventh, they are intelligent. They have a plan. They think about what they want to do. Uh, In verse 44, the demon says, I will return to the house I left. Stop there. So they, they make up a plan. They have an idea of what they want to do. They think it through. Demons are thinking beings. They decide what to do. The devil is spoken of as having schemes. We're not unaware of his schemes. So the devil has a plan. Have you not felt this in your own life? Have you not been laid low by a temptation and realized that it was a whole combination of things that led to the point where you were willing to yield to something that morning you said you'd never yield to again? What happened to you? Well, the devil had a scheme. He had a plan, a strategy, and it worked. They're intelligent. They make plans. Eighthly, they are self-determined. I will return to the house I left. Not if the Lord wills, I will return to the house I left. Not at all. I will. I will return to the house I left. They're self-determined. They're not under Christ's kingship. They don't submit to his authority at all. They do what they feel best. And so the devil himself, uh, in Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, I believe this is speaking of, of the devil. And so, ultimately, king of Babylon immediately, but... You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will, I will, I will. But James says in chapter 4, verse 13 through 15, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know if you'll be alive tomorrow. What is your life? It is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Oh, that's the very thing a demon will never do. He's not going to say, if the Lord wills, I'll return to the house I left. No, no. He's going to go if he wants. He is self-willed. Ninth, he is possessive. He owns things, so he thinks. The NIV leaves it out. Why does the NIV leave out words? Sometimes it does. And it leaves out a possessive here in Matthew twelve forty-four. By the way, I love the NIV. We do. I, I We just, you know, we accept one another. I think that's what it is. And I accept the flaws because it really speaks so powerfully and clearly at uh, other times. But uh, in this case, I have to let you know there's a word left out in Matthew 12:44. The demon says, I will return to my house from which I came. It's possessive. He has a sense of ownership. And so the devil is also very possessive. You remember when he took Jesus to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So he's possessive. He has a sense of what's his. Now This is what makes Christ's expulsion of demons such a great act of power. In Luke 11, 21 and 22, it says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house... His possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. The demon feels a sense of ownership over his property. He feels like he owns it. And he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. Tenth, demons are relentless. They are persistent. They come back later. I will return, he says. The devil and his angels don't give up easily, now do they? Have you noticed this in your Christian life? Have you ever defeated the devil in a temptation and had the feeling that was it, you'd never have to deal with that again? And then later that day, or again tomorrow, he doesn't give up. He just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. Even Jesus had to face this. Remember when he defeated the devil out in the desert? It says in Luke, chapter 4, verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. (laughs) I'm coming back. Now, what the devil's opportune time is and what you think yours is are two different things. He's looking for weakness, an opportune time, but he returns. They're relentless. They don't give up easily. Eleventh, the demon is undaunted. He's not intimidated by moral reformation. He's not intimidated by a clean house. When he arrives, he finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. And like I said, he says, time to get to work. Everything's looking good. It's all arranged. It's all neat and well-ordered. He's not intimidated at all by moral reformation, by cleaning yourself up. Nope, it's time to mess it up. The demon thrives in bringing chaos where once there was good order. The real issue is that this house is unoccupied, isn't it? There's no power, no force. There's no Christ in that vacuum. And so he's going to flood in and fill it. Twelve, demons are cooperative with other demons. Verse 45, then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself And they go in and live there. They cooperate with other demons to make a monstrously huge impact on the world. They really do get along in one sense, work together. And this demonic cooperation is the essence of Satan's kingdom. It's so essential that Jesus said, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then can his kingdom stand? If demons start fighting one another, there's no kingdom anymore. So they work together Multiple demons inhabiting one person has already been seen with the demonic horde called Legion. And they're all in there. Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And then 13th, the demons vary in wickedness. They're not all the same. He says, he goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. Doesn't that imply there's some kind of a gradation or order of wickedness? I bet you thought they were all the same. Well, they're all in rebellion, but they're not all equally wicked. Gradation. Some demons are just simply more vile than the others. In any case, this moral cleaning up without being converted to Christ results in far greater evil in the end. The final condition is worse than the first. And then Jesus says, that is how it will be with this wicked generation. All right, well, 13 things about demons. Why can demons not occupy to satisfy? Demons do occupy people. They also drive and tempt and entice and lure and seduce and persuade people to join them in uncleanness all the time. They entice people to commit sin so that they will be just like them. Demons want us to be like they are. And enticing us to follow their ways, they make us restless, yearning, hungry human beings. Always eating, but never satisfied. They make us demonic roamers of the earth. Do you remember Cain's punishment? Do you remember? After Cain killed his brother Abel, God punished him. And in in Genesis chapter 4, verse 12 and following, God said to Cain, When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Did you hear that? A restless wanderer on the earth. Who does that sound like? Sounds like the devil. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Do you see how much Cain is like the devil at this point? First John 5 said it was the devil that drove him because the devil's a murderer. And so Cain has become demonic in this way. And so also Israel. When they refused to enter the promised land, God turned them aside and said, Therefore, for the next 40 years, you will roam restlessly through the desert until the next generation comes and they'll enter the land. David spoke of evil men in his day in exactly these same terms. Restless, animal-like searching. Psalm 59, 14 and 15 They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and they howl if they're not satisfied. That's so demon-like, isn't it? And people in evil are hungry and searching for something. And the devil is prodding them on and they are never satisfied. The theme is clear. A consistent pattern of restlessness, of roaming, of searching but not finding, of hungering and consuming but never being satisfied, of having no rest, no home. It is demonic to the core. For demons, like people, it's the same thing. There is only one place of rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Demons cannot occupy to satisfy because they have a yearning, yawning emptiness inside themselves that they're trying to fill. And the world order that they have arranged around us seeks to fill by the same way, and it never will. It never will. Demons drive people to fill that emptiness with lust, the promise of satisfaction through physical, sensual pleasure, or with ambition, the promise of satisfaction through earthly power, or with entertainment, the promise of satisfaction through mental stimulation apart from achievement. That's my definition of entertainment. The promise of satisfaction through mental stimulation apart from achievement and materialism, the promise of satisfaction through accumulation. These are the things the devils sell, and they do not satisfy. They do not occupy to satisfy. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Secondly, morality and worldly accomplishment cannot occupy to satisfy. Now, when the demon arrives, it finds a house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. The house has been freed of demonic influence, but it's also free of the Lord. It's unoccupied. The Holy Spirit has not entered in. Christ is not Lord there. There's nothing there. It's a yawning spiritual vacuum, and it will be filled by something. Now, the word in the Greek, unoccupied, means literally to have leisure for or be available for, to be free for. It's like a for rent sign or like at a hotel, you know. It's, it's got, they've got rooms for rent. It's unoccupied. The word is "scholazo," from which we get the word school or scholastic. Now, you might say, well, that kind of puts academics in a bad light. Many of our kids are going off to college they become scholastic types. Well, it doesn't, it's not a bad thing. It just means that you're freed from manual labor to study higher things. Science, math, philosophy, other things. That's why we call it liberal arts. It means you're free. The word liberal means free. Free from earthly concerns so that you can uh, pursue higher things. That's the word used here. But this is my point. The freedom has to be for something. It's not going to remain empty. It's going to be used for something. And so Christ frees up this man from a demon. And it's freed up. It's unoccupied. It's ready. But there's nothing there. No occupant has come to take its place. And so what does this man do? He uses it for moral reformation. He sweeps clean his house. The house is swept clean. The spirit was unclean. But this house is swept clean. The effect of the demon's past occupation are over. Demons bring chaos. They bring disorder and mess. But now that this man is in his right mind, he starts to clean it up. He cleans up his life. But since the house is unoccupied by the Lord, it's nothing more than moral reformation. It's not conversion. Mm, Not at all. The alcoholic goes to AA and stops drinking. The drug addict stops using the drugs. The user of internet pornography stops doing that. The adulterer breaks off the relationship, stops his bad habits. The spouse abuser, embarrassed by the potential public shame and maybe even conviction by the law, reforms his ways. The driven businessman, about to lose his family and he sees it coming, uh, cuts back on his work life and his his travel schedule so that he can spend more time with his wife and children. Cigarette smoker with early signs of emphysema quits cold turkey. The embezzler, terrified of his friend's conviction, looks to his own business and cleans it up and starts doing things right because he doesn't want to get arrested. The glutton, afraid of the early warning signs of a heart attack, starts to eat better and exercise. The guilty sinner... Afraid of the consequences of his life, prays the prayer they tell him to pray, signs the card they tell him to sign, goes to the meetings they tell him to go to, but he's not converted. His life is improved, but he's not converted. There's nothing inside. Perhaps he's just simply a Benjamin Franklin-style moralist. You know, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, and he starts to... You know, lead a clean life, a life of of discipline and self-control, a life of self-actualization, good eating, good exercise, good business habits, making the most of every minute to achieve his goals which he has set for himself. Moral reformation. Now, let me tell you something. All of these improvements are in themselves good things. But they're nothing if they're not the fruit of conversion. If it's not because Christ has entered your life and now, for His glory, you want to clean these things up and start living that way, now that is something. But apart from that, they are nothing but a mirage. It's like apples taped to a dead tree. It's, it's not reality. And churches in America are filled with these kind of folks. It's a dangerous substitute for the genuine thing. Favorite form of moral reformation is religion. A long list of religious do's and don'ts. If you keep them, you can boast to yourselves of your religious life and your moral purity. Pharisees' houses were swept clean. They didn't break any outward commandments. They offered long, showy prayers. They announced their almsgiving with trumpets. They fasted twice a week and made a big show of it. But they were unoccupied by the Lord. The indwelling spirit was not there. They look good on the outside, but they're filthy on the inside. Matthew 15, 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or there could be worldly accomplishment. Good order, cosmetic arrangements, adornments. The word is related to cosmetics. It means adornment or beautification. Once you get your house cleaned up, now you can start dressing it up. Make it look good. Put some good things in your house. Some achievements, some awards. Some things you can boast about, some accomplishments, checking boxes along the way, things that you can do, the house, the life, the career, the material possessions, the honors, the accolades, and all of it in good working order. But it's empty. And why? Because a house is unoccupied. There's no Christ. Moral reformation, even through religion, cannot occupy to satisfy. Worldly organization and adornment through achievement cannot occupy to satisfy. And Jesus says, the last shall be worse than the first. Have you heard that expression before? King James Version, Matthew 12, 45. The last state of that man is worse than the first, even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. Actually, did you know that moral reformation and religiosity as a response to the gospel without genuine conversion is worse than if you'd never heard the gospel at all? It's worse. It would be better never to have heard the gospel than to respond that way. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20-22 says, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does that mean? If they've cleaned themselves up Escape the corruption of the world, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to know the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverb is true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. You know why? Because it's still a dog. had not been converted. It's still a sow. You can clean a sow, but it's still a sow. It not been changed. It's cleaned up, but it's not converted. And it's worse in the end. If you hear the gospel and don't believe, it would be better for you never to have heard the gospel. Now, what does it say about the future of Israel? Well, Jesus, in effect, said there were demonic strangleholds all over Israel. And he had driven out, out demons. You know what I think? The picture I get is, did you ever play at the beach? And you're you're scooping out sand and, and the water keeps coming in. And if you can scoop fast enough, you can keep it dry for a little while. You see what I'm saying? The demons, I think, had kind of left and were all at the borders waiting for Jesus to go back to heaven. The house, Israel in this case, the whole generation, was unoccupied, swept clean. It was put in order. The demons were out in other countries waiting. And then when he goes, they come in like a flood. What do I mean that the house was unoccupied? Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He wept over it and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And then what does he say? Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Now, let me ask you a question. What would be another word for Desolate. Would it not be unoccupied? For I tell you, you will not see me again. He connects their desolation to himself. And he says, I'm leaving. I'm going. I'm going back to heaven. And the demons are going to come in. And it's going to be worse in the end than before I came. A tangible, physical evidence of that was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. Christ alone... Can occupy to satisfy he's the only one that can now this isn't directly in the text is it but would it be all right if I preach on it anyway to say that Jesus Christ can occupy your heart to satisfy you he can be your treasure and your pleasure he can fill that God-shaped vacuum he alone can do it and he can do it and he wants to do it do you remember what he said to the woman at the well He said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. For the water that I give him will become within him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the language of satisfaction, isn't it? Drink as often as you like. Drink again and again. For I can occupy you from within you to satisfy you. I can take away your guilty conscience. I can pay for all of your sin. I can give you an indwelling spirit. I can give you a purpose in life. I can do all of these things for you. I can fill your God-shaped vacuum to overflowing. Christ and Christ alone can occupy to satisfy. Now, what applications can we make of this? First, moral reformation without Christ leads to hell. Actually, is one of the favorite ways of getting to hell. Cleaning up, but not loving Christ. Secondly, the human heart was meant to be occupied, free from bondage, to be devoted to God. Understand this. Know that your heart has this vacuum inside and it's going to be filled with something. Thirdly, recognize the limits of freedom and choice, politically, even religiously. You know, these days with the abortion rights, they speak of freedom to choose as though choice or freedom were itself... By itself, a good thing. And it isn't. It's totally connected to what is chosen. We are unoccupied and then filled. But filled with what? Filled with demons or filled with Christ? And so, freedom to choose and all of that thing is totally connected to what they choose. Did you see what happened in Baghdad once the people were set free from Saddam Hussein's reign? They went wild. There was looting. There was pillaging. There were vigilante groups. There was murder. Until finally law came in and brought restrictions again. Is that what we mean by freedom? Is that America's gift to the world is freedom? It wasn't America's fault. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying freedom by itself is is nothing. It's totally connected to what we do with the freedom. Do we use freedom for sin or do we use it for God? Fourth, does Christ dwell in your heart by faith? Does he? Is he there? Do do you see how important a question this is? Ephesians 3.16, Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. When I was a student, I saw a pamphlet called My Heart, Christ's Home. Is he living inside you? Is he eating dinner with you? Are you fellowshipping with him from within? Does Christ dwell in your heart through faith? Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled, occupied with the Spirit. And then fifth, have you ever heard the expression, the idle hands are a devil's workshop? Have you found it to be true? That if you're not occupied with something... You're going to be occupied with something else, and that something else is sin. We are meant to be occupied, devoted to the Lord's work. We are most vulnerable to sin when we are idle, unoccupied with Christ's kingdom. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. So are idle minds and idle hearts. Fill your mind with pure truth. Saturate your mind with the Scripture, with the Word of God. Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Word dwell in that empty space inside. Think about whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, lovely, admirable. Fill your mind with these things. Fill your mouth with pure blessings from God. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to God. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. Fill your mind with Scripture and your heart with Scripture. Fill your mouth with words of blessing, with the gospel message for this generation. And fill your days with useful service to Christ. Be very careful, Ephesians 5.15, how you live not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. In the King James Version, in Luke nineteen thirteen, parable of the ten pounds. He called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy until I come. You know what that means? Get busy. <laughs> Work at the kingdom. You know, one of my, I, I'm, this is not in my sermon. I'm just going to tell you. One of my big fears for this church is it will just be Satisfied. And not occupy till he comes. It will just take in the word and we'll just take in the fellowship and the good things that are here. And we will not, like warriors for Christ, occupy until he comes. We'll just get complacent and satisfied. You've got to get busy in the kingdom. I have to be busy in the kingdom or else that place is going to get filled up with something. And it isn't going to be good. Jesus Christ came into the world to fill that empty place inside of us. Demons and their lusts and all that can't. Fill it to satisfy. Neither can worldly accomplishments or moral reformation. Only Christ can. Do you know Him?
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification,